This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Namai, Hari Mai, Kiyoratanakwe, Free FM 89.0, Independent Community Media. Good afternoon, Bruce Scott, Mel Driscoll, and guests on Cosmopolitan News and Views on March 27, 2022. It's day 56. We've got 307 days to go. Well, we've got a few bits of history coming up between the interviews this afternoon. And right now, let's take a look back. Let's. Bless my heart, it's all about Scotland today. 1871, 150... Oh, sorry, before I do go on, good afternoon to my brother Malcolm and good afternoon to all the members of the fan club listening in this afternoon and are listening in this afternoon. Um, as I said, 1871, 151 years ago today, the first international rugby union match took place at Rayburn Place, Edinburgh, Scotland. Before a crowd of 40,000, Scotland uh, took on England in 50-minute halves. Yes, 50-minute halves. Remember, today they're about 40 minutes. Well, 50-minute halves in those days, 1871. Scotland won the encounter with two tries and a, and a goal to England's single try. So let's celebrate today. Scotland beating England on the first rugby game. The night is falling, hear, hear, the pipes are calling, loudly and proudly calling down through the glen. There where the hills are sleeping, now feel the blood a-leaping, I as the spirits of the old island men. That beat beneath Scotty skies Wild are the winds to meet you Tons are the friends to greet you Kind as the light that shines In fair maiden eyes
FM 89.0, independent community media. This is Cosmopolitan News and Views, a quarter to one, with the late Kenneth McKellar unleashing that great tenor voice of his Scotland the Brave. Well, another point of history today, 1952, the film Singing in the Rain, starring Gene Reynolds, sorry, Gene Reynolds, no, Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor premiered in New York. When Kelly was filming the iconic Singing in the Rain scene, he had a temperature of 103. The water, there were gallons and gallons of water poured onto the set to make that iconic scene. Milk was included to make the so-called rain kind of show up on screen. Poor old Debbie Reynolds got a mouthful from Kelly at times because he was a taskmaster and um, he didn't want to, he didn't want Reynolds in the film. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, Gene Kelly. But we've come to notice how popular the movie is still is. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love. Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Come on with the rain, I've a smile on my face. I'll walk down the lane. With a happy refrain Just singing, singing in the rain Dancing in the rain I'm happy again I'm singing and dancing in the
singing in the rain. Yes, debuting in New York this day in 1952, Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and a 19 year old Debbie Reynolds, and singing. In Lorraine, good afternoon, Mel. Good afternoon, and a special welcome to Cosmopolitan News and Views to David Cooper, Chief Executive Officer and Director in the Specialist Immigration Advisory Firm of Malcolm Pacific Immigration. You're a former uh, immigrant. Pardon? Yes, uh, sorry. <laughs> you're <laughs> a former immigration officer with the Department of Labour who, for 40 years since, has welcomed applicants having left the public service. Applying to permanent, uh, applying for permanent residence here, to be citizens of Aotearoa, New Zealand, or eligible to work here, and then came COVID nineteen to shatter all of those intricate arrangements. David, the flights, the employment contracts, police clearances, and medical certificates on which so much of their future depends. Is it in chaos, the immigration service, I mean, the whole network of people who are tied up with successful migration from one place to another? How's it Good looking? afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, look, uh, chaos, you know, that's probably a good description. Uh, I think, in fairness, one of the problems we're suffering from is that immigration New Zealand is woefully under-resourced. And, of course, with two years of the borders being closed, um, and now they're having to gear up, um, just like every other employer in New Zealand, they're finding it difficult to find staff. So, um, you know, I don't think uh, we're going to see immigration settle down any time soon. And they keep on coming, new situations overtaking the one before it, all of them deserving of attention. The one that uh, the government made an announcement about this past week was that it would offer visas to the parents and wider families of New Zealand Ukrainians in an effort to help as many as 4,000 people to escape the war raging their homeland. Yeah, look, correct. And and personally, uh, I think that's a good thing. We've done it before. We did it when there was... um, a war in Bosnia and Serbia and and we've done it when there's been other conflicts in places where where there's been family in New Zealand. Um, So we are helping um, some of those families out. We're doing it uh, at no cost because we we think, you know, somebody who's escaping a war-torn country needs as much help as possible. Uh, But I still think there's a long way to go because, yes, they're getting temporary visas to come to New Zealand, but the government hasn't signalled a pathway to residence for them. So, you know, that's one of the things that concerns me. Are we going to say, well, you know, when the war's settled down, you can go back? I think we need to be moving relatively quickly. It's a small number of people to say uh, you will get residence. And I think we need to be saying, uh, you know, what assistance are we going to provide them once we get here? I mean, gosh, they'll be suffering uh, from lack of money, a lack of um, you know, clothing, um, right through to helping them find jobs and, and housing. and So there'll be a lot that I think we need to wrap around these people once they start hopping off the plane. 
Do you think also that it starts at ministerial level? Chris Farfoy is the Minister of Immigration, but he's a very bus- uh, busy minister. He's got so many portfolios. It is, is it time for a dedicated Minister of Immigration who's just involved with immigration at the moment? Oh, look, I do. I do. Um, and, and, you know, we've had some very good Ministers of Immigration in the past, And I think what makes a very good immigration minister is somebody who cares passionately about people. From a political point of view when it comes to immigration, and I've been doing this for 40 years in January next year, you never get any votes about what you do in the immigration space because half the population says keep them out and the other half says bring more in. So there's no votes to be won in immigration. But I think you need to be passionate about caring for people. Uh, because there's been a lot of finger-pointing um, over the last few years about how immigrants have been, you know, they, they take jobs off people or they're the reason for all the traffic in Auckland, etc., etc. But you know, we forget, number one, we invited them here. Um, and number two, uh, their hopes and dreams are no different to the rest of us as Kiwis, and they're putting their shoulder to the wheel and they're working. Um, and so I don't think they're the blame for our problems. Uh, I think part of the problem is we don't build the infrastructure behind them as they get off the plane. Uh, another problem too is that I've, I've heard these stories about immigrants coming to New Zealand. I've heard these um, online trolls, that they're basically racist online trolls saying this and that. And also, but the thing is too... So, and you probably hear this too, New Zealanders are too lazy to get out of bed in the morning and it's up to these immigrants to uh, do the jobs. Well, well that's very true and, and that's certainly been what we've been seeing not just over the last few years but even going back to the 1970s when a lot of people used to come in from the Pacific to do jobs Kiwis don't do, want to do and you know today they're still coming in from the Pacific to pick our fruit because we don't want to do it. So that goes on. And my family came here in the 60s uh, from the UK. I was two and a half. I had no choice. And, you know, in those days, people wore a, uh, a T-shirt, which was batch upon the day. So yeah, we've got a history of, of, of knocking migrants, but they're only coming here because we've invited them. And they're coming here primarily to work. And, you know, when do they stop becoming a migrant? And, and when you talked about you know, ministers taking charge of that, there's two fascinating things I picked up in Australia. One, I was up on the Sunshine Coast and they do a citizenship ceremony on the beach in summer where you know all of these newly minted Australian citizens go up on stage and the mayor's giving a little speech, etc. But all the locals, of course, the beach is such a place that everyone goes to. All the locals were there and they're cheering and clapping and it makes people feel like they're part of the community. And the second thing is, uh, in Australia, they actually run adverts to tell the locals about what benefits migrants bring to Australia. Because I do think part of the problem we suffer from in New Zealand is the government are telling Kiwis we're bringing these people in and nobody's actually bringing the Kiwis along with us. So when you hear like the online trolls about racism or people have their pre-conceived uh, ideas of what migrants are really like, well, the government's not actually selling the wrong word, but the, 
the government's not educating people about the benefits of migration. Yeah. Your, your parents would have noticed in the mid to late 50s the immigration of people from the West Indies, and that caused a big stir when all these West Indians came into the UK. Yep. Yep. Oh, look, absolutely. And migration is not without its issues. Um, but I think if we, if we all work on it together, because it's as important for the host country that's receiving them to work on accepting and settling them as much as the migrant to make the effort to settle in. And I think if you if you're doing that properly and you're doing it carefully, um, you know. And in fairness to New Zealand, we actually haven't done too bad a job. But I think there's more we could be doing. We we, we look at the, the Ukraine now, which of course, as we know, Putin's aims to uh, form reform the USSR. Well, <laughs> that 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 that's a bit of a myth to some people, but it's, it is happening. We've got all these Ukrainians coming to New Zealand. They'll bring lots of good work skills to our country. Oh, look, absolutely. And, and I think one of the things you can think about is when, when Kiwis go on their big OE and they go to places like Europe and the UK, they're so warmly received because they're hard workers. And the reason they're hard workers is they need the money to survive. They need to uh, fund their travel around Europe, etc., etc. And it's no different when migrants come to New Zealand. They want to succeed. They've left their home country they want to be, they want to be homeowners. Uh, they want to settle into their communities. They want to live like locals, and they're prepared to work hard to do that. You know, it's not unusual to see migrants holding down two or three jobs because they're dedicated to, to getting a family for their home, and and they want to succeed in New Zealand. One of those who migrated to New Zealand in happier times for his homeland was. Yure Gladden. He is an engineer from Ukraine and he is taking a role in the organisation that's been formed among them. He says that when the news came that the people oppressed in his homeland now and leaving everything behind, when that news came, he said, it's amazing. That, that's actually amazing. Because he was used to the bureaucratic tangle that normally makes such things very slow to take root. So it seems New Zealand is opening its doors in that respect. But then we have the uh, grim realities uh, pointed out in a Waikato Times um, editorial in which um, they point out that the bureaucratic tangle is likely to make it difficult for people to actually succeed in the links to family, relatives, friends in New Zealand? There's definitely a long way to go. One, this is the initial offer of temporary visas to get people quickly out of the Ukraine to New Zealand. As I mentioned earlier, the government hasn't announced any pathway for these people once they're here to be able to become residents of New Zealand. And I think that's a big miss. The government should have made that clear that they they didn't have to make the... They could have at least said, and we will be opening at some stage a pathway to residence to give these people hope to know they can settle. 
but you know, we, we have a parent category that allows migrants to bring a certain number of parents to New Zealand every year. Uh, it's been closed since about 2016. Um, and the parents are, have been sitting in a queue since there with uh, no decisions made by government. Uh, and in fact, what a lot of people don't know is that in fact the skilled migrant category is closed at the moment. So you may have read stories about doctors and teachers who are saying, well, we have no pathway to residence, so we're leaving. In our business, we're talking to doctors, nurses, IT specialists who are saying, I'd love to come to New Zealand. I'm really excited about coming to your country, but I'm not going to sell my house, burn my bridges in my home country if there's no pathway to residence in New Zealand. It's too unsettling. So we're missing out on skilled people that can come here to fill jobs that we desperately need people for. David, should we also uh, keep the door open for Russians fleeing the Putin regime, because um, if you read some of the papers, uh, the people of Russia are about to turn against Putin. Well, well, it, it's a good point, and I think <coughs> the same would apply. There are uh, a number of Russians, not huge numbers, but there are a number of Russians who have migrated to New Zealand who will be concerned about their family. Uh, it may be a slightly harder one for the government to deal with, uh, given that at the moment they're more focused on sanctions against Russia. Uh, but I guess that'll be a question of watch this space. An idea that came from a letter writer to the Waikato Times on March the 25th, Jeff Orchard of Ohalpo. He said, do these family links have to be? Why not let the rest of us in New Zealand sponsor a few Ukrainians to give them an opportunity to re-establish their lives? Is that likely to happen? I doubt it. One of the things with immigration that goes back to 1991, when Bill Birch, who was then Minister of Immigration, introduced the, the skilled migrant category, the point system, which selects most migrants, uh, a lot of the focus went on numbers about how many people can be approved residents of New Zealand every year. And ever since then, there's been this huge concern around numbers of migrants. Are there too many? Are there not enough? Et cetera, et cetera. So successive governments have been so uh, concerned and mindful about migrant numbers and not wanting to be criticised. Uh, Winston Peters, when he was in coalition with the, the Bolger government, uh, managed to get a population conference. It never went anywhere. But, you know, if you look at a, a successful country like Singapore, for example, uh, they started out going back to the sort of 70s by saying, we're going to have a population target and we're going to aim for this target over X number of years because if we grow our population, we will grow our economy. New Zealand, we, we've shied away from that and I don't think there's a politician brave enough to sort of suggest we should have a population policy so I don't think our doors are going to be thrown open I think actually we've got a, a government who wants to be more conservative around immigration and the numbers 
than than uh, being prepared to throw the doors open to more people. Yeah, no, uh, an, another problem, and I saw this the other night in an interview with the uh, one of the co-leaders of the Māori Party, they were talking about the Treaty of Waitangi, and it came to this that the treaty encompasses all New Zealanders coming to New Zealand, but then she had to say that um, it should be based upon uh, tangata whenua. Mm. Well, look, you know, I think there's been discussions before about, you know, should should migrants be required to sign a pledge to New Zealand um, as part of the process of applying for residence. And, you know, potentially that has some merit. Um, look, I don't really know. I, I think at the end of the day, New Zealand for the foreseeable future is going to rely on migration. There's too much outflow of Kiwis leaving the country, taking their precious skills with them. And for us to sit here and say, well, uh, we don't need any migrants because we've got enough people here already, uh, we're living in dreamland. We will need migrants. We will need their skills. Um, and, and, you know, they bring so much beyond just their skills. Yeah. Uh, the diversity they bring to New Zealand, you know, it's made a lot of our cities very lively. And, and the, you know, migrants have also moved around the country, rural areas, you know, farmers. Uh, it's not unusual to find Filipinos or Indians working on farms or uh, the British working holidaymaker picking fruit um, or somebody from France working in a restaurant in Queenstown. Filipino health workers are here at Waikato Hospital. I've been told that by one of my housemates looking after his fiancée. It's, um, yeah, they, they're very, very hard workers. They are hard workers and they're extremely caring people. My mother was in palliative care for a couple of weeks last year and all of the staff were Filipinos and for that last two weeks of her life, if you'd written a script, you couldn't have had a better a better journey for the last care of her life. These people were fantastic. So the focus shifts, David Cooper, from the time when you were a young man taking first an interest in immigration as a future career. We saw the boat people from Indochina coming to settle. And then inevitably world events move the focus on do you remember those days as being when there was enthusiasm from the New Zealand community to give a helping hand, to set up homes, to prepare for the new settlers? Yes, I absolutely do. And I, I remember those uh, the Indonesian Chinese uh, coming into New Zealand because I, I did one... Uh, one mission to go to Singapore to pick up. It was around about 200 people we brought back. And, and hearing some of the stories, because this was in the 80s, but in fact these people had spent several years in refugee camps. And, and we all think, oh, well, somebody's got out of the war-torn country. They're in a, a, a refugee camp. They're safe now. But these camps were almost as dangerous as what they came from. I mean, they were surrounded by armed guards and if people tried getting out of the camps you know there were people that got shot um, and you know life in these camps weren't wonderful and, and I'm aware of some of these people that even today are still being treated for PTSD and, and, a, and a series of mental health issues despite the fact 
that they've become extremely successful. Uh, you know, we, we've been aware of some families where, you know, they've opened up bakeries and they've worked seven days a week. They've, they've paid for homes. There's one chap I know very well. He actually came here on his own. He lost all his family. He lost contact with them all. Slowly reconnected, but he was holding down two jobs for so many years to buy a house, to be able to bring his family over, and then they all work together really hard as a family to then buy homes for each other. They haven't cost the taxpayer a dollar. Um, but, you know, some of them have suffered from mental health issues along the way. And I think, coming to the fast forward to the Ukrainian story, I think that's going to be the same thing. We need to be saying, how can we help these people once they get here? And, and that's not just the government. That's how, how can local Kiwis step up and do something to help out. Yeah, and another problem too, and they're not exactly um, immigrants, but the 501s that Australia has deported and they bring in their sorts of problems to New Zealand now too. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting one because um, New Zealand, we do have in our laws, if, if a new migrant comes here and they commit a serious crime... Uh, that within 10 years they can face deportation. The law of New Zealand, however, is after 10 years, we accept you as one of our own, good or bad. And I think that's the part that the Australians uh, can't get their head around. But at some point, if you want people to successfully settle in Australia, you need to be able to say at some point, you're one of us good or bad and you know when you're hearing stories of somebody who moves to Australia as a two-year-old and, and gets into trouble as a 30-year-old being sent back to a country they have no connection with at all uh, you would have to question uh, what humanitarian values are present in Australia and it's easy to say you know I'm sure there will be a group of Kiwis who would say well why don't we do the same thing you know, at some point, you have to say they're one of us. Well, of course, uh, this new policy out of Australia, it's political. Um, Australia's due to go to the polls shortly, so it is political to see um, <laughs> with this new policy coming in. Yeah, look, it is. It is. But I go back to, I think, a comment I made earlier. When does a migrant stop being a migrant? I mean, if they become a New Zealand citizen, do we still say, oh, there's John, he's a migrant, but he has become a New Zealand citizen? Or do we say, there's John and he's a Kiwi, he's one of us? He may not look like us, but he's still one of us. And, and we keep putting labels on migrants or refugees, but when do they stop being a migrant or a refugee? And when do we say, they're one of us, they're a Kiwi? Directing, as you do, such a large immigration advisory firm, Malcolm Pacific Immigration, your contacts, your everyday life must be spent among people who are hopeful and those who have already succeeded to make this their homeland. Do you want for company of people who were born here to families long established in New Zealand? There, there are some incredible stories, and um, I, I could spend all afternoon <laughs> telling you the stories of, of 
contributions that migrants have made to New Zealand, uh, and so much of it goes under the radar and uh, is not reported on. Because a lot of these people, once they get to New Zealand, they just want to get on with life. They want to become part of our community, and they don't want to stand out. Um, you know, we, we've had uh, investor migrants, for example, and, and some have been household names that have ended up in the newspaper and things like that. But there's been others that are flying under the radar that are investing in businesses, creating jobs, saving businesses, investing in businesses that are uh, uh, investing in new technology, uh, start-up companies. And I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars plowed into our economy that is all flying under the radar. A lot of it, even the government doesn't know what's going on because these people just want to make a contribution to New Zealand. Um, and they don't want to be on the front page of the newspaper. They just want to get on with it. And, and the same in, you know, if you, if you end up being sick and in one of our hospitals, I don't think you sit back saying, well, I don't want that doctor treating me because he's not a New Zealander. I actually think when you're sick, you say, thank goodness for migrants. Oh, you're a good advocate. And and if, if a person from the Ukraine turns up at your doorstep looking for a job, you'll offer them a job if they've got the right qualifications. Absolutely. Look, you know how Australia is paranoid about you know, boat people arriving in, in Australia? Um, uh, Aussie Malcolm, who set up our company, he and I used to joke that if a boat ever made it to New Zealand... We'd go down to the beach and take as many in our car as we could and say, well, look, we've got a bedroom for you at our place. <laughs> um, because I don't think they'd ever make it to New Zealand. But if they did, you know, if, if people are fleeing where they come from, um, why do we have this hostility towards refugees? I don't understand it. I mean, the world actually doesn't have a great record of how they treat refugees after the Second World War. They locked them up in, in camps, and they might have said, well, they got three square meals a day, but they still went from one prison to another prison. Yeah. Well, if there should be any boat that runs ashore out at Raglan, um, it would be interesting to know what the Waikato's reaction would be. <laughs> I think you'd be surprised. You'd be amazed at how many people would chip in to help. Well, as the grandson of a Scottish immigrant that came aboard a sailing ship back in the 1800s, let's keep welcoming people from all over the world to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Couldn't agree with you more. David Cooper, Chief Executive Officer of Malcolm Pacific Immigration. Our thanks that you joined us today on Free FM 89.0. Coming up shortly too, we'll check out the latest COVID rates and our next guest. I see the cozy ingle and the mist up in the brain and joy and sadness mingle as I list some old world and it's all but I'm longing for my Play. 
Independent community media, Kenneth McKellar, my ain folk. Well, the latest COVID information for people who have died with COVID-19. While there are 10,239 new community cases and 848 hospitalizations today. It came as Saturday saw the highest number of uh, COVID-related deaths reported in a single day. Earlier this month, 24 deaths were reported in one day, but 16 of those were historical. So four people have died with COVID-19. This is from the Ministry of Health, while 10,239 deaths. There was around 14,000. Mel, it's coming down slowly, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, we can see that there will come better times with less anxiety. And Yep, and... The borders will be open and uh, we'll hopefully get a lot of immig- immigration. It's 20 past one. Mel, who's next? Well, we last heard from David Cooper and one of the aspects he mentioned was about the pressure of bureaucracy on the legalisation of the status for people who would gladly get a job if they could and also about some lack of willingness on the part of New Zealanders to take the jobs that might be offering. One of the problems is that sometimes it involves moving within New Zealand. Not everyone's prepared to do that, understandably, but there are younger people who are missing. They're missing because of the unnatural effects of COVID-19 on the influx of foreign holiday makers with visas that allow them to work. One who's dealt in this field and is very aware of the lack of labour that's really crucial to their industry is Paul Painter, General Manager of Yummy Fruit Company in Hawke Bay. Afternoon. How are you, Paul? I'm very well. What's, let's talk about some of this yummy fruit first off. What, have you, what do you prepare? Oh, we are the largest stone fruit growers in the country by area, so um, it's just plums, nectarines, apricots, uh, and we also grow pears, and our biggest crop, of course, is, is apples, which is a very large export crop for New Zealand. We look forward to them in the supermarkets they've been around. <laughs> this is the time when the pressure's on your industry, the harvest. Oh, a huge amount of seasonal labour. Probably uh, somewhere north of 10,000 uh, seasonal workers required at Hooks Bay for some vegetables, but certainly uh, apples, a little bit of kiwi fruit, and some hand-harvested grapes. People think of Hawke's Bay when it comes to fruit. 
and Watties. Are they still a big player in the Hawke's Bay these days? Yeah, they are. They've been, they're now owned by Heinz uh, Multinational, and to some extent they've lost a bit of their brand value with the community, uh, but they're still a very important player and a big employer in Hawke's Bay. You are the region that leads New Zealand as in the biggest pulp fruit uh, region, and you're at the peak of your season virtually, aren't you? goes through till April. Apple picking? Yes, we, we pick uh, fruit for about five and a half months, but the, the biggest time really is is um, about uh, about now. I'd say mid-March to mid-April is the, is the peak of our season. And so we would have usually this time of year... Well, last year was it was uh, a little bit lower, but two years ago, same times, we were just under 500 seasonal workers. Do you, do you pay by the box or the hour? Uh, yes, we have a number of mechanisms of paying depending on on uh, what crops we're harvesting and, and what's required. But at this time of year, having some incentive for productivity is important. So basically we pay people, um, uh, well, it depends on the experience, but basically they'll get a, a standard wage rate and then if they manage to pick three bins a day, they'll get an extra $2 an hour, and if they manage to pick four bins a day, they'll get another $2.50 an hour for every hour they work. So the the um, the you know, the worst of them probably is earning minimum wage, and the, and the best of them is probably earning about $40 an hour. Well, given such conditions, there should be a lot of applicants. There are, Not everyone has a job yet. Well, unemployment in Hawke's Bay is certainly low from a regional perspective, and I heard your intro in the the big issue is getting uh, labour mobility to the country and certainly in previous generations there was a range of a transient workforce that used to prune grapes in central Otago and, and harvest uh, stone fruit down there and then they'd, they'd pick apples in Hawke's Bay and then they'd go and pick kiwi fruit and they'd move around the country but uh, that's the bygone era, they certainly don't seem to exist in any numbers these days. But the biggest challenge we actually have is housing because of the housing crisis I get lots of inquiries from young people saying, oh, you've got four months' work, I'll come down with uh, two or three friends, uh, we'll rent a, a flat and we'll live happily ever after. Well, none of the landlords are interested in short-term letting at present and there are very, very few rental properties available. So they're, they're really forced to look at um, backpackers-type accommodation, which doesn't appeal to them to the same extent and they don't turn up. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't you... Um erect a tent on your property and they could live in a tent? Bring, bring uh, sleeping yeah. bags, etc., and just live in a tent? Uh, we're getting organised for that. We have, um, I think, about 20 camper van sites here with reticulated power and water uh, where people can come and bring their, their camper van and, uh, and plug it in and live there for free if they're going to pick apples. So we've got no, no hesitation there. And actually, probably about 15 of those sites are empty at present. Um, but last year we probably had a bigger uptake of people who were uh, getting some of those those camper vans cheaply from the, the companies that rent them and uh, travelling around the country a little bit. But this year we're short of them, we could use a few more. After the Second World War, there were many displaced people in the United Kingdom. The crops had been put in, but where was the labour force still involved with the defence forces disrupted in their lives? There was a problem. So an appeal went out with assistance financial coming from the private sector to subsidise the costs associated with displaced people. 
moving to wherever the crops were, from one to another, following an organised group that were able to offer that as a way of salvaging the crops and also overcoming the rationing that it applied during the war. Could you think that there's a crisis in an industry that has the fruit but not the labour force to pick it all when it's best done? Anything that could be organised, say by service clubs, accommodation, billeting of people, is that feasible or not? I think it is to some extent. We've certainly managed to find places for people to live with families here uh, and and that's generated some extra income for those families and made good use of their homes. But certainly accommodation is incredibly tight. I mean, we never saw homelessness in Hawke's Bay and they're currently in our region about 180 people living rough, which is something we didn't see a generation ago. And when I travelled to Auckland and I walked down um, as I did a few months ago, Queen Street is about 9.30 at night for a stroll. Uh, it's different than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there wasn't um, endless homeless people on the streets. There are now. And so we've got some really significant social problems driven by mental health issues, um, drug and alcohol problems, uh, the lack of housing, uh, probably some failures in education. It's a very complex problem, but yep. it's getting worse. And it really worries me. You, you talk about drugs. When you have people come to you looking for picking jobs, do you ask for, to take a drugs test so you don't have people on your property working around machinery? Uh, we have, we, we're, uh, as a family employer, the, Sydney, the big corporates are really strict on that, and we are too, but we're so desperate. If you're going to be driving a, a tractor or something like that, absolutely you're going to be regularly drug tested. Uh, but if you're a rank and file, if I've got somebody who's um, stacking boxes of apples in the pack house and they're in a reasonably secluded area, I'm not drug testing those people. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, if I was, I would probably have about 20 less staff than I've got now. So, um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say we're turning a blind eye to it. If you're in a risk area, we're very concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, there's quite a significant portion of the population who are receiving an unemployment benefit who are not work-ready if you want them drug-free. It's too soon to say, I suppose. But should it eventuate that this picking season, a lot of fruit is wasted? It's unforgivable in a world that's that's short of food. What do you say? Yeah, it is unforgivable. And I think we need to be frank with government that this problem has largely been... Uh, man-made. But we do have travel bubbles with uh, three Pacific Island countries and currently there's about 12,000 RSE workers from the Pacific here who come annually. Uh, they've just increased the cap to 16,000 but that um, that will never eventuate, I doubt. It's a bit too late making a decision. But some of these people, they're, firstly they're young, clean-cut young men mostly and uh, they're good hard workers. They earn very, very good incomes and uh, they go back with more money than they could make in 10 years in the islands. Um, and some of them are starting businesses over there. You know, we had a group of guys a couple of years ago, uh, two of them got together, bought a boat, and went back there and started a little um, tourist uh, fishing um, expeditions from, from, their, uh, from their village. So some very good things happening economically. And we have the ability to bring more of those people in and get some insurance because the cost here is really not... Um, you know, just a few apples falling on the ground. Those are export dollars they're going to lose, and I think our industry could lose 
around about $100 million worth of revenue this year. The industry itself was worth north of $900 million. It would be very easy to leave $100 million behind. And when you've got a government that's running very large COVID deficits, that foreign exchange income is very important to New Zealand. It's very important for Main Street. It's important for the shopkeepers and the cafes and the restaurants. All doing it really tough. And if that export revenue doesn't arrive, uh, that money isn't there to move around the community and, and keep Main Street alive. Main Street alive. Paul, have you? do you do trade with Russia? Because a lot of these uh, companies in New Zealand, they're, they're cancelling all their contracts with Russia because of the Ukraine. Do you export anything to Russia? We do. It's probably less than 5% of our overall business. And so we're aligned through that. There were some early exports to Russia. And certainly if you didn't get your money up front, um, your might, you might be in a little bit of trouble because the, obviously the ruble has fallen out of bed and is not worth a great deal. So the price of New Zealand apples on the retail shelf in Russia would now be prohibitively expensive. So the people that have purchased those, those, those apples in US dollars, um, which is how we trade, uh, you know, have a big problem with basically overpriced fruit and the ruble really hasn't lost its value. So I'd say the trade to Russia is now uh, entirely stopped, but there'll be a little messy um, group of exporters who have got a container or two who are, uh, are over there and really they can't sell it for the prices that the importers expected to. You mentioned containers. We hear there's been trouble with the supply and therefore the export of crops that are perishable. Yes, the reliability of international shipping, uh, which we rely on a great deal, is running somewhere in the mid-30s. Um, so it's extremely unreliable. And a lot of the shipping companies that we're coming every week are coming every two weeks. And they're saying, if we're running behind schedule, we just might sail by the Napier port and carry on. Um, and if that's the case, you end up with hundreds of containers at the port with not enough pipes to keep them on refrigeration. So the the shipping, uh, the port rings you up and says, can you take these away, devan them, rebook on some other line and, and ship them again. And that's logistically a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happened from time to time. And if it happens in a significant way, uh, it'll be total chaos. There certainly isn't the capacity to uh, devan and, and reschedule all of those exports. Paul, another... Paul, another issue too is contracts with the supermarket chains and you've probably read the stories about these that some supermarkets have the uh, see the right end of the contract with the growers and if the growers um, do not play ball with the supermarket chains, they are blacklisted. Have you heard those stories? Yeah, I have heard, of those, heard those stories. The, uh, we're a big supplier, and I think uh, the supermarkets we supply appreciate us, so we find them pretty constructive to work with. But certainly small suppliers, and we've seen this um, with the supermarkets, they've consolidated their range to some extent, and sometimes they've dropped some small suppliers or they've limited the amount of varieties they might take. So our largest customer has said to us um, that one stage they had half of their staff in their distribution centre away uh, with one illness or another or a stand down because they had a family member with it and so they couldn't operate effectively so they've reduced their range and streamlined their activities and so we haven't sold some packs or varieties that we normally would to them because of that and I think that that's, that's not anything uh, negative against the supermarkets they're just trying to stay functional in a very 
difficult world. Yeah, and here's the thing from the bygone era too. Do you still sell, like some growers do, fruit and whatever at the gate and you've got an honesty box out front? Do you still do that? No, I mean, it's big business now. We've got 365 kind of employees and, uh, and so the, the few dollars that brings in isn't um, particularly relevant to our business. We need to sort of earn it in bigger chunks. Uh, but certainly I, I, um, I dream of having a, uh, a fruit and veggie shop again and uh, because that dynamic of the engagement with the, with the customers and you can learn a lot from the average uh, customer and, and the feedback they give you. So I think it's invaluable and I'd love to have a fruit and veggie shop again. We yeah. one one. Well, uh, over the years I've, I've drunk a few uh, glasses of good old Hawke's Bay wine and it's still popular, is it? It is. My suggestion would be would be cider. I make a bit of that on the side and uh, lower in alcohol, and uh, it's um, <laughs> convivial. We talk of a bygone era. As children, we often heard the adage, an apple a day will keep the doctor away. Perhaps we should be saying as a matter of patriotic duty, two apples a day. That would solve everything, wouldn't it? Well, they probably should um, feed them to the New Zealand women's cricket team because they wickedly increase their run rate. Um, so I absolutely think that apples are immensely healthy. There are a lot of compounds uh, in them that are uh, very positive. There's, there's a lot of phenolic uh, compounds in there and compounds like fluoridin, which is you moderate sugar absorption. Um, there are some uh, catechins and epicatechins which have been shown to be uh, have anti-cancer um, effects. So there's no doubt that fresh produce, it's widely proven that the more fresh produce you eat, the longer you live and the healthier life you'll have. To think that in the case of Yummy Fruit Company, it all began as a family enterprise, whereas now there's so many employees, you mentioned 350, I believe. So the changes that have come to your family could never have been foreseen back when it began. Where was that and when? Well, um, it's a funny old winding road you take, but I think the biggest change was the deregulation of the domestic market in 1994. Strange to think back there, uh, it was illegal for a grower to take five boxes of apples down to the supermarket and sell it. Everything was controlled by the producer board, even the domestic supply. So we had a, a local yummy stone fruit business which started off as yummy nectarines, and um, we just tacked on the, the apple business to that and it was phenomenally successful so we kept doing it. But the second big thing for the industry was the uh, deregulation of exports in 2001 and also the emergence of many new varieties that uh, are crunchier and more reliable than, than the old ones. And so we grow some things like sweet tango and ambrosia, uh, things that weren't heard of 20 years ago. And certainly we see really strong consumer demand for new varieties and new flavours. And I think we've got to continue to innovate and inspire the consumer. Otherwise, they won't eat fresh produce. They'll uh, just buy some cheaper confectionery. Well, we've got a new trade deal with UK. So that'll probably help get some of your apples and, and cider into the UK. Um, I don't think it will be very helpful. One of the dynamics we've seen in the last 10 years, in 19... Uh, in 2005, about 70% of our apples went to Europe and the UK. And now I think that's probably about 28%. So we've seen uh, a real change in focus from uh, the UK and Europe. 
way to Asia, and there's two reasons for that. One, it's it's uh, the shipping route, routes and the growth in incomes in Asia, but also because they're very interested in new varieties and premium fruit, and they will pay um, more money than, than the Europeans. If you go to a European discounter, uh, the consumer there sees them as a commodity, and they're not that inspired, whereas uh, some of the Asian consumers will pick them up and look at them from four different angles before they make a purchase decision. And Paul, they really revere fresh produce and they will pay for good quality. Paul, it's, Mean, been, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon, Paul. Well, meanwhile, the apples are dangling on the trees. Would you offer work if you had people come who were available for a few weeks? Oh, for sure. We, we will be operating in the packhouse for much longer than that. And we've got, uh, we're taking on people for day shift, night shift. We're taking on mum hours of 9 till 2.30. We're taking on students that will work 4 till 9 p.m. Uh, we're taking on people who will just work on Saturdays. So basically, if there's, uh, if there's uh, people who are enthusiastic to help out, uh, we're uh, happy to do a deal. So, Paul, you, you yourself do the night shift sometime? Uh, yes. Unfortunately, I'm here a little bit late in the evenings some days. But uh, if I don't get home reasonably early, the gravy's a bit cold, so I need to go home and look after my kids. And you get your kids into the pack house too? Well, these days with health and safety, less often than we used to. I make them put their high vis on and we wander around very carefully. Uh, but yeah, I try to discourage my staff from bringing their children in, so I feel a bit bad about bringing my own in. But it's good to have them connected with the business. Well, so these, are, the field this afternoon. these are anxious days to see what happens to the current crop. It's in good form, is it? Oh, it's great. Yes, we've had a wonderful uh, growing season. Unfortunately, the last week has been very wet in Hawke's Bay, and that's disrupted our harvest. But prior to that, the crop, uh, in terms of quality, is very good. No hail to speak of? Uh, We've got a tiny wee bit this year, but as an industry, we probably were the unlucky ones. Um, There's been no economic uh, impact from hail this year, whereas last year in Nelson particularly, they had a big storm. And, of course, the historic Hawke's Bay water supply problems... Uh, a thing of the past? Oh, well, that isn't there. We uh, were looking at another dry summer and the farmers were struggling after three years of drought, but we got we got around about 100 uh, millimetres of rain uh, about six weeks ago and we've just had probably 140. So the farmers have never been happier. The, the hills are starting to green up, which we seldom see at this time of year. So at, at the moment, water is plentiful and nobody will be irrigating anything. We'd better let you go and have, have your lunch because uh, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, the pleasure's mine. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Paul Painter, General Manager of the Yummy Fruit Company in Hawke's Bay. That's the company to contact if you're available, footloose and fancy free. 22.2 on Free FM 89.0.
13 minutes to two. We've got Trevor's talk shortly. But our next guest, Mel, is... Gloria Stockdale. Now, Gloria's family had misfortune. We're reminded of how precious our loved ones are and how an unforeseen event that maybe we had no part in the cause of can have tragic consequences within the family structure. How did it begin for young Gloria when you were so young and things changed within your family? Gloria Stockdale. Yes, hello. Uh, yes, unfortunately, um, my mother was biking home and um, had my little sister in the back of the bike and unfortunately a man ran into the back of her, didn't see her. My little sister got killed outright and my mother was um, very unwell, nearly died as well and very unwell and she unfortunately couldn't look after us children and back in those days, um, I'm talking 1956, um, my father kept working and so us children, we all got sent to welfare homes. And um, the, yeah. the name SIFS rears its head? Yes, SIFS, or well, today, and, or is Aranga Tamariki now. They call it, yeah, yeah, but SIF, Child, Youth and Welfare, and back in those days it was called um, social social welfare homes, yeah. And yeah. you shifted often from one yes. to another? Yes, shift quite often would shift every year, Christmas time. Have you lived with the consequences? Yes, it does affect, oh, absolutely, it does affect your life. Um, uh, um, areas where you're not confident, uh, not too good always on trusting people. Um, and also, it, yeah, it does affect, and affects your choices in life that you make as well. And But the one good thing about it was um, school. Um, I, I love school because that was security and reliable, safe, safe at school and, of course, learning. Yeah. And now, of course... We're right in the middle of uh, an inquiry into alleged um, abuse in some of these places. There wasn't any abuse in your life at some of these uh, in state care? No, no. I was very blessed there wasn't, no. No. And, and no. often lonely, lonely for your own family because mm. you were yes. in different homes. Yes, and always wondering, well, why didn't I see them and my sisters and my brothers and where were they and where was my mother and my father? But it, back in those days, you, they didn't do visiting arrangements and all those sort of things. So, um, but, um, no, some, uh, twice I went and lived with a, a lovely Christian auntie and uncle and um, so they were like family, so it wasn't all bad and um, I learnt some good skills. And uh, as I say, school was important to me. Um, and also time. the long holidays. How did you sort of escape imaginatively from the plight that you found yourself in? Oh, um, we, um, played, we played outside, we made huts, we climbed trees, we rode push bikes. Um, we had to help around the house. You didn't dare say that you were bored because you'd get a job. <laughs> didn't know what the word bored meant. Meant um, no, we were you know always pretty busy and um, yeah, and played games because there was no TV and no no um, IT or anything like that. So had, had you access to libraries? Yes. And the radio. What was on the radio at the time you listened to? 
listen to the radio. I personally, no, I didn't listen to the radio so much. No, 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 no. But no. you were a, a reader. Yes, yes. Do you still read the same book as you did as a child? No. <laughs> I've progressed to the Waikato Times and the New Zealand Herald. <laughs> you notice that not so many uh, seem buried in books these days? No, that that is tr- that could be true. But remember, not long ago, when they what was it? Kindle they brought out, but then they discovered, and they thought that Kindle would kill books, but it didn't. And um, they do say that a lot of people now have gone back to reading books because they like to hold a book and yeah, turn the pages and convenient. You like wrote that. a letter to the editor of a newspaper in which you set out some of your concerns. What brought about that letter? Um, what, sorry, what was that again? Well, you might like to share the letter with yes, us. Yes, yes. Well, I was concerned. Um, I was concerned about the low levels, which didn't shock me. I'm concerned about the low levels of um, uh, the children's um, reading and writing and maths. Um, at high school level, 62% of our children in the schools now, they're, they're below level. 62%, that's more than half. Um, and that to me is so sad because if you can't read or write, if you grow up and leave school and you can't read or write, your chances of getting employment are zilch. Uh, you know, you're doomed, you're literally doomed to failure. And um, it really, really concerns me. Um, so uh, I, had, I did, I wrote a letter. Yep. Um, shock horror. The recent article on our low literacy and maths levels in New Zealand is no surprise to us older people. We learnt to read by the phonics system and maths by the rote system. It worked. When will we ever learn that the old saying is so true? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Good advice. (laughs) Do you think anyone takes much notice these days? No. I actually do, I have been doing voluntary work in schools for 25 years, the last 25 years, and I've had this conversation with several teachers over the years, and um, they just, they, no, they just throw it out the door, rote learning, it's, it's rote learning is a swear word, just about. Um, It, It wouldn't have been in the days that you served on school committees. No, no. Uh, well, no, it didn't really make much difference then either because it was out. And it, and this is a sad thing. It goes by generations. And so we're old generation, and so the new generation comes in. It's, it's the same all the time. They want to fix it, and they, they think they've got a better way of doing it. And it, it well, I don't, well, we, we, the evidence is there, isn't it? 62% yep. that... Um, that can't read or write sufficiently well. No. Um, so there's the evidence. And it, look, it was just so easy learning your times tables. First thing in the morning, sat there and sang your times tables. Were and tested. All, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, and as Mel knows, my, my handwriting is atrocious. But, but I was put, brought up with the phonics system and uh, maths. And uh, my late aunt used to prepare cards for me to learn my times tables at home at night. So where is that all gone? Um, that's been unfortunately taken over by an iPad. 
Yeah, and um, and the youngsters these days, they want to get on TikTok and start yeah. dancing and send their pictures away. Um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a different world. And there's no doubt that they absorb so much information that way. Maybe it's not a bad thing. What are they missing? Um, I'm not. I know it sounds like I'm against technology. I'm not. I can see a place for it, but... It's like when we first got TV. You monitor what the children are watching and you don't let them sit there all day or all night watching it. It's a time thing. They're allowed on, you say, an hour or whatever, you know, yeah. whatever's appropriate. I don't know because I haven't yeah. got little children at home. But it's up to the parents to discipline it. But unfortunately, the parents are all working as well and they're tired and it's just so easy, no arguments, just let them carry on. Yeah. And, yeah. and sadly, the children ultimately the children suffer because they can't read or write. Yeah, no, of course, um, the kids are woken up in the morning. They've got um, they've got all these cartoons, and some of them are pretty suspicious too. As you, as you sit down and watch them with acts, acts of violence, but uh, yep. I, I do see that uh, Les Mills is sponsoring a, some type of exercise in the morning. Do you think the kids should get out of bed and uh, do the do the dancing with the kids on uh, the Les Mills p program? Poss uh, well, okay, possibly for 10 minutes, but that would never work because they'd want to do it for half an hour. <laughs> we, we had a rule in our house, no TV on, uh, on school mornings, school day mornings, we, no TV. For the first few days, yes, it was World War Three, but <laughs> I was the boss. <laughs> and that was that and it worked and they didn't after as the time goes by the children don't know any different you must re you must remember your favorite television program of years past no <laughs> not even coronation street <laughs> i like the original coronation street <laughs> because it was good clean humor but as time wore on and today i couldn't be bothered with it um talking about tv the thing the other thing that really saddens me is the terrible violent programs on tv that are coming on at eight thirty at night and our children are exposed to them especially again where there's no discipline in the home but you protected so far as you could as their mum your yes. children from yes. the worst excesses of it yes. how's it worked out for your children have they work yes. careers yes yes what yes. do they do um, one's a high school teacher, one's an accountant in Australia in a bank in the business management side, uh, one's an early childhood educator and um, my son is a trained engineer. Well, the accountant must know his maths. Um, yes. that's the, <laughs> and the high school teacher, they must be teaching, trying to get through the brains um, of, of uh, the students. Yes, and, and but do you know what the biggest... Um, what the high school teacher one tells me yep. is the absolute disregard and disrespect that these children have for teachers and education because they cannot sit still long enough. First of all, they do not want to write an essay and a story. Do, that, do, does, your, does your high school teacher family member take away their cell phones? Uh, I'm not sure what the... This is in Australia. I'm not sure what the rules are there, whether they're allowed to take their phones to school or not. Are you confident that grandchildren of yours will be confident in reading? I'll be making sure. I'll, <laughs> I'll be checking up on them. And if so be it, I will help teach them to read. And Granny's on their case. We'll bring, yes. br bring them back to New Zealand if they're living in Australia. <laughs> 
Oh, no, were, these are the ones in New Zealand. I'll be on their case. <laughs> a glorious Dr. Hill concerned for the, the reading um, versatility of people in the future. They might even need to put bookshelves in their homes. Yep. Super grands on, on, on your case. <laughs> Thank oh, you, Gloria. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Our last contributor today is Trevor, and that's next. Dear God, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, that it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. So what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? If I were a rich man, all day long I'd biddy biddy bum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. Topol from the soundtrack, of course, of um, Fiddler on the Roof. And if I were a rich man, well, I don't think none of us got much money in <laughs> It is seven minutes to two. Good afternoon, sir. Oh, good afternoon. Trevor's talk. Yeah. I was talking about the, uh, today about the Kanawa, Kanawa horses. I think I pronounced yes. it right. Somebody will tell me later on if I didn't. <laughs> uh, they, they need protecting. Apparently they, they cull them every now and then because they're uh, eating some special plant-like uh, grass and the fields that they roam in so they're putting the plant life over the over the life of the horse but um, they should really let them go let them be there's plenty of land for them to roam around and gallop about and breed and just be horses and these special plants that they're concerned about I showed to them running around on television I couldn't see anything other than ordinary grass but these plants or whatever it is that they claim to be eating as an excuse for culling, why not just pick them up and replant them somewhere else and let the horses be? I mean, all this playing God over animals, you know, there's too many animals or this or that or whatever, whether birds, horses or whatever, let's have a cull. It's like when they had those, uh, those goats. Uh, oh, the tars. Tar goats, that's yep. the one there. Yeah. They put a ban on hunters and let the conservation department do the culling. Well, the hunters, they went and protest down the street. And it wasn't for the sake of the, of, of the goats. It's because they were deprived of the privilege of killing them themselves. Hey, very well. And uh, have you upset anybody this week? Or? Not that I know of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've kept a pretty low profile and... Uh, uh, not to upset anybody. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 been one of those weeks where all the new um, all the new policies are coming in. Uh, the we're going to have two hundred in a in a bar somewhere, and we're going to be ha- not having to use these uh, these things. And they had to be seated too, don't they? Yeah. Uh, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It, it must be crushed on the nightclubs. Yeah, it's it's an interesting times and. Uh, we're into getting into April, and uh, hey, this year's gone pretty quickly. Well, I don't know where it's gone. You know, I thought well, it was ages from my birthday in March, and now we are in April. Mm-hmm. Been and gone, and it's like a express train, really. Time, isn't it? Anyway, it's time to get out of here. Thanks for your company this uh, Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to all our guests. We've been talking fruit, and we've been talking education, mathematics, history. 
And we'll do it all again at round 20 to 1 next um, Sunday. You have a good week, Trevor. Yeah, you too, Bruce. And, of course, we'll leave you with a cartoon song. This time, it's a band called The Dickies. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.